0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cone of Shame veterinary podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I got a good one today. We are getting into the controversial subject of grain-free pet foods. What does the research say? What are people saying to each other? What is the controversy about? Uh, what do we need to know to make good recommendations to pet owners. My guest today is Dr. Brennan McKenzie. He is the author of Placebos for Pets, The Truth About Alternative Medicine and Animals. He is also the author of the Skept Vet blog, which I really like and recommend if you want to read what the evidence is on any sort of uh, animal health related topic. He's been the president of the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medical Association. He lectures on Evidence-based medicine all over the place, and he has published journal articles on such topics as overdiagnosis, cognitive bias in veterinary clinical decision making, and the philosophical underpinnings of evidence-based and alternative medicine. Uh, he is is uh, a great guest. He is super knowledgeable. We dig into all kinds of aspects of diet and nutrition today, and so let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome, Dr. Brennan McKenzie, to the Cone of Shame podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me back. I love having you back. Um, you, are, uh, you are fascinating and you have the coolest perspective on issues in vet medicine, and so I really enjoy uh, enjoy our time together. I got one for you, uh, and I'm just going to be honest and say, you were not my first choice. I did not plan to come to you with <laughs> I this. won't take it personally. No, don't take it personally, but you were definitely not my first choice for this, and here's why. I continue to see battles about grain-free foods versus not grain-free foods, and I see veterinarians increasingly on... Uh, opposite sides of the battle, which I felt like a couple of years ago, uh, the veterinarians were very much like, oh, no grain free. You know, that stuff is, is is marketing hype. And now the perspectives definitely seems to be changing among some of our colleagues and other our colleagues is definitely not. I reached out to uh, more than one veterinary nutritionist who I uh, who I respect and who are wonderful and said, would you talk about this? And they said, no. And I said, what? What do you mean you won't talk about it? And they're like, not touching this it's too it's too controversial the uh even the uh the nutritionist community is is pretty divided on this and so this is the only thing i have ever reached out for an opinion on and uh been denied and so one of the things i love the most about you is that you sit back and you look at the information you do a great job of synthesizing this presenting what is factual and what is not. And you have a very much an outside opinion of this. So I thought we would do this a little bit differently. And what I wanted to talk to you was, help me understand why I can't get a nutritionist to talk about grain-free on the podcast and what what really is going on.
1: Sure. I think uh, it's an interesting topic, uh, both from a scientific perspective, because there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think it's also an interesting topic because there are competing perspectives and agendas, and there are commercial implications to the answer when we finally get what an answer is. And so uh, a lot of people have investments in what that answer should be or what they want it to be. Um, I think it's a shame that, that it's hard to get specialists with appropriate expertise to talk about controversial subjects in public. Um, I understand why. I, I get a steady mm-hmm. stream of hate mail for my, uh, my public opinions, and nobody <laughs> enjoys that. Um, I'm a little bit uh, inured to it after many years, but I understand some people find it distressing. and and I also think that, um, as we were discussing, nutritionists do have uh, have relationships to maintain within academia and within industry to allow them to do their work. And it's easy to uh, damage those relationships by offending people. So I, I I will say, you know from the beginning that I'm not a nutritionist, and i do I do have a lot of respect for, the value of expertise within a subject, and so there's no question that I would defer to you know a board-certified nutritionist on subjects like this. Um, where my expertise does lie is in evidence-based medicine and in looking at the science and trying to understand what the limitations of the evidence uh, are and uh, trying to draw some conclusions from that. So hopefully that'll be a useful perspective on this topic, uh, even if I don't have that particular background you were looking
0: for. That's 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 what I'm looking for. So yeah, I um I let me be real clear. And say, I love the Board of Nutritionists I work with. I think they're fantastic. I looked at them for information. I just, um, it, it boggles my mind that we have come to a place where, where people inside a profession disagree so strongly as they do on this topic. And I guess even today in this, in this podcast, it, it's less my intention to, to figure out what is quote unquote the right answer as as much to try to figure out why people feel differently and so diamet- diametrically opposed. And so that, that's really what I want to get at today.
1: So, I would say, one good way to start looking at this question is from a historical perspective. Uh, you know, the, the disease, dilated cardiomyopathy, that we're talking about, has been around for a long time. And in cats, it's well established that there is a nutritional cause for this disease. Uh, taurine deficiency was identified uh, back in the 80s as a cause of dilated cardiomyopathy, and diets were adjusted and supplemented with taurine, and the disease virtually disappeared. So there's a a history of understanding that diet may be related to this disease. In dogs, in general, the disease has been considered to be primarily genetic in origin. Certain breeds, Dobermans, Great Danes, Irish Wolfhounds, tend to get it. And there have been some studies looking at the genetics of that, and and it's pretty well established. It's only become understood gradually over time that diet may play a role in DCM in some breeds. Uh, There were some studies back in the uh, early 2000s that found that some dogs eating lamb and rice diets uh, tended to have taurine deficiency, just like the cats did, and tended to develop DCM. Now, there were some limitations. A lot of those dogs were similar breeds. There were golden retrievers. They were closely related, so it was difficult to rule out a genetic component to that. But for the most part, we've thought of this as a genetic disease, and we've only gradually come to start thinking of it as potentially having a dietary component as well. So that's a change, and it's always hard to change our perspective on these things when we think we already know the answer. The other change that's happened historically has been in the diets out there. Grain-free diets didn't very much exist before the early 2000s, and they began to develop in response to a couple of of consumer demands. One was the concern that grains might be uh, involved in allergies, uh, in Mm. skin allergies and GI disease and grain-free diets were initially promoted as a potential treatment or preventative for dietary allergies. Um, The evidence is not very clear as to whether that is really uh, a viable route to preventing or treating allergies, but that's the theory. There also was, as I'm sure you remember, a sort of wave of gluten phobia that passed through the culture with regard to human nutrition. Gluten and Mm -hmm. wheat were bad and caused all kinds of terrible things. Much of that has also not held up Uh, Through the research over time, but I think that fads and ideas in human nutrition bleed over into veterinary nutrition So I think grain-free diets fed into the desire to avoid uh, things that were perceived as unhealthy for people So the industry has put some statistics together and it's really quite interesting grain-free diets Rocketed in upward in popularity over the course of the early to mid-2000s and so as of 2019 they were about 43% of the diets sold. So 20 to 40% of dogs were eating a grain-free diet. Whereas if you'd looked 15 years earlier, maybe 2% of dogs would be eating a grain-free diet. So there's been a huge shift in the market um, for reasons that have more to do, I think, with uh, culture and, and less to do with scientific evidence. The, as you point out, the traditional mainstream veterinary response to this was, well, grain-free diets don't really probably have any value. Maybe they have some value for allergies, but that hasn't been proven. But, you know, they're also harmless. They're, they're well, you know, uh, designed and formulated just like any other diet to meet AFCO standards. And so, you know, we'll just ignore the fact that, you know, we're not entirely convinced by the reasons why uh, clients are choosing them. Yeah. That began to change in 2018. What happened was that the FDA has received over the years a very steady low rate of reports of dogs with DCM, about one or two reports a year. Suddenly in the first half of 2018, they started receiving a a higher number of these reports. They got about 16 cases reported to them in the first half of the year. So the FDA in July of 2018 put out an announcement saying, we're getting an increase in the reports of this disease. And we've noticed that a lot of the dogs in these reports are eating either grain-free diets or diets that are in some sense novel or unusual. Maybe they have an unusual protein in them like kangaroo or venison Mm -hmm. instead of the usual chicken and beef and pork that have been the mainstays of protein in veterinary diets. Um, Or they have a lot of legumes, things like peas and lentils instead of the grains in them. We don't know exactly what this means, but everyone should be aware of it and let's take a look at it. So, of course, following that report... There was a significant increase in the number of cases reported to the FDA. When you tell people to look out for something, they're going to start seeing it everywhere. So the number mm-hmm. of cases reported to the FDA skyrocketed. And um, as of their most recent update, which was uh, towards the end of last year, they've had 1,100 dogs with DCM reported to them.
0: Wait, um, they went from like they went from one to two a year to 1,100. Is that right? To what you're 1,100 saying? in a little over a year. Yeah,
1: because they raised awareness, right?
0: Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I, yeah, I completely agree. That's astounding. It is.
1: And one of the sources of controversy with this whole subject is whether there truly is an increase in the number of DCM cases mm-hmm. and a change in the dogs who are getting them from dogs with a genetic predisposition to dogs who aren't traditionally associated with DCM, like golden retrievers, for example. And there's a lot of uncertainty around that point. So those Mm -hmm. people who are concerned about grain-free diets are saying, we're seeing a significant increase in the number of these cases. We're seeing them in breeds that didn't traditionally get this disease before. And it seems like a lot of these dogs are eating untraditional diets of some kind, often grain-free, not always. The the folks who are less convinced by this hypothesis are saying exactly the opposite. Um, There've been a couple of sort of informal... Uh, grapevine surveys of cardiologists, uh, one done by uh, Dr. Elise Freeman, who's one of the, the authors and nutritionists that we'll talk about who's been involved in this uh, issue. Um, and a lot of the cardiologists she talked to said, yeah, we're seeing more of these cases. And then there's been a survey of other cardiologists by a different group, uh, more affiliated with the food industry, who said, no, we're not seeing any change at all in the incidence of DCM over time. So there's, there are differing perspectives based on whether this disease is even more common than it used to be.
0: Right. So, so the two questions that are both sort of ongoing is, number one, is this really an increase or is this an increase in awareness and reporting? And then number two, correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, right? So what is going on is we have pets eating a much wider variety of types of food than they ever had access to before, right? The, the market for, for pet food has just exploded and there's a million varieties of food and there used to just, just not be anything like this. And so if we start to see new diseases, is that tied to the expansion in the pet food or are those just two things that are uh, occurring simultaneously you know that 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 don't have anything to do with each other so yeah exactly. we, there's a couple of layers of possible uh, branches here
1: and i think that what's important to understand and and what might turn the temperature down on the controversy a little bit is that even the folks who who have been studying this and who raised the alarm at the beginning the fda Dr. Freeman, in her editorial, some of the people who have published research on dogs with DCM have said all along we do not have the evidence to establish a definitive causal link here. Mm-hmm. That, that what we have is a correlation, and we have a list of potential suspects in the diets, and we don't really know what it all means yet. The problem is that raising awareness. Does good things in that it encourages people to be on the lookout for this and if something is is relatively uncommon It's hard to identify unless people are aware of it and looking for it But the other thing that it has done is it's affected the marketplace. There has been a decline in the popularity of grain-free diets Since these reports came out and the FDA uh, in their report from June of 2019 Named specific brands of food that were frequently found associated with DCM in the reports that they'd received and those companies have lost market share as a mm-hmm. consequence of this. So naturally that creates a lot of, of concern, particularly if you know the, the folks who are, are you know, suffering this economic loss have looked at the data and aren't convinced that there really is anything going on here. So I think it would be useful for us to remember that we're trying to get to a scientific answer. And that's a process that is often slow and has starts and stops and steps forward and backwards. is going to take some time, and in the meantime, um, I I don't think that anyone is really making definitive statements, but I understand that, you know, there are some potential consequences to even raising the question. I I don't think that means we can't or shouldn't raise the question, but I understand why that generates some pushback.
0: Oh, it's definitely science in the age of Twitter, right? Like, everyone is, and they're just hanging on everything that comes out, and there's no context to anything, and and every little pearl gets put forward as the defining narrative, and uh, yeah, it's it's... It's uh it's wildly uh, unstable, I guess. And and if you were someone who worked at or was heavily involved with a company making uh, pet food, that would be terrifying. You know, sure. again, all the context is sort of stripped away, and 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 a study comes out, and, and there's not there's not debate, there's not conscious, you know, um, processing of what of what this means, how it fits in a larger picture, but the landscape just shifts radically, and that can be devastating. So, yeah, I totally understand the, the, the emotion and the fear around that.
1: There's another source of uncertainty, which I think is interesting and plays into this as well. Um, in some of the reports of studies of dogs with DCM who've been on these diets, the good news is that a fairly high proportion of them have experienced full or partial recoveries. <clears throat> and that's interesting because traditionally genetic causes for DCM lead to a disease that isn't very treatable and that tends to be uniformly fatal. So the fact that we're seeing dogs recover, not only clinically, but, you know, normal echocardiographic findings uh, coming off of their congestive heart failure medications is great. Mm-hmm. This implies that we're dealing with something, as we saw in cats with taurine deficient cardiomyopathy, that could actually be treatable or preventable, which is good news. The challenge is that in these reports, these dogs have not only had changes to their diet, um, which, you know, again, would support the idea that diet is an important factor here, but have also had taurine supplementation, and we can talk, if you like, about taurine and how that plays into all this, have had, you know, other medications to treat for cardiomyopathy, and there hasn't been any consistent therapy or, or protocol. So that raises the question of whether these dogs are getting better because we've changed their diet, because we've taken away grains, or, taken, or added grains, or taken away legumes, or if they're getting better for other reasons that we haven't identified yet. So the people who are, you know, looking for an answer and trying to, to help these patients are, are always eager to say, you know, the fact that they've gotten better supports the hypothesis. But of course, the people who aren't convinced by that hypothesis are likely to say, you've done a lot of different things to these dogs and they've all gotten better. How do you know it's the thing that you you think is the reason and not something else, which is always an issue in science?
0: Right. No, that, I mean, that totally makes sense. So where where do you think this goes from here?
1: Well, the ideal thing, of course, is prospective studies. Almost all of the studies have been retrospective. Uh, so, so people have gone back, for example, and looked through medical records at Tufts University and other places. Find, found dogs who had DCM and then had a diet history so we could figure out what they were eating and then tried to classify them in terms of dogs with grain-free diets or dogs on traditional diets. And sometimes they find some differences. There have been a couple reports that dogs who have cardiomyopathy and are eating grain-free diets have worse conditions, have more uh, severe echocardiographic changes than dogs on traditional diets. But retrospective studies like that are full of pitfalls. Uh, It's impossible to to be sure that the information you gathered years ago was correct. Definitions and strategies for categorizing disease have changed and you might be comparing apples to oranges if you're looking at dogs that were not seen in roughly the same time period. Um, There's a lot of missing information and there's no way to ensure any kind of random or representative sample of of the dogs that you're studying. You just work with the dogs who happen to come in during that time period. So the gold standard would be perspective studies, to go forward and look at dogs on certain kinds of diets, to try to describe and classify those in some objective, verifiable way, and then to track over time the incidence of this disease. That, of course, is a slow process. It's an expensive process. The disease, by all standards, regardless of where you stand in this debate, is pretty uncommon. So it's going to be difficult to follow enough dogs to collect enough cases. Um, To get a definitive answer. So I think prospective studies are going to be challenging Um, Certainly, you're not going to be doing what are called randomized controlled studies You're not going to deliberately try to give dogs cardiomyopathy by feeding them diets that you think might do that So you're mostly going to be working with what are called case control studies where the dogs develop the disease on their own and you simply try to to follow them in time and collect data on what they're eating and how they're being treated and use that to establish causation. those are really powerful studies. That's how we identified the risk, for example, between smoking and lung cancer, um, when we obviously couldn't do manipulative studies with humans. But they do have limitations and they take a long time. So unfortunately, I don't think there's gonna be a very clear universally agreed upon definitive answer to this question anytime soon.
0: Where would where would these studies even come from? I mean, are these university studies in your mind or these uh, are these government studies? Are these uh, pet food company studies like like where where do you think leadership on something like this would even come from?
1: Well, that raises a couple of great questions So the FDA um, has done some research, but they only have available cases that are spontaneously reported to them So there's there's bias in the selection of cases. They don't have the ability to go out and prospectively Choose dogs and follow them. So the FDA has said that they're going to partner with uh, academic veterinarians and also with industry to try to put together some more comprehensive research. Um, I think it's encouraging that the FDA is taking a leadership role on this, because I think they can be a neutral party in some ways. They don't have a a vested interest in the outcome. Um, The studies are mostly going to be done, of course, at academic institutions because they have the resources to do the cardiology workup and to do taurine testing, which is not actually a well-established lab process in dogs. We don't even have normal ranges for different breeds that we all agree on. I do think that there's a general problem with veterinary research that uh, affects this issue as well, which is that the majority of the patients are not in academia. The majority of the patients are in general practice. and where the the academic studies are done often involves a subset of patients who are very different in a lot of ways from the patients that you and I see every day in our practices. And I think that sometimes we come up with answers that don't apply to the populations that most of us are treating because we're dealing with specialized populations that are at tertiary care facilities. So I would love to see some sort of outreach in which academic uh, veterinarians who were trying to do studies like this established networks within general practices to conduct surveillance, to identify cases, to bring those cases into the study. To some extent this is what happened with the study at UC Davis in the Golden Retrievers. Uh, interestingly enough two of the 24 dogs in that study were patients of mine. Uh, I had identified them as having DCM and as also having taurine deficiency um, in my practice just as part of our routine workup and then uh, referred them up to UC Davis where they became part of the study. And those, you know, cases wouldn't have been available to study if they hadn't been identified in general practice. And I think that it's really important if we really want to understand something as uncommon as DCM, that we cast as wide a net as we can and get general practitioners involved in the research.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. Let's talk about regulation of pet food a little bit. So it's, it's, largely kind of the wild west or at least it has been as far as what's available um and you've got i mean you've got afco standards but there there are pet foods on the shelves that are not uh afco approved they're just they're just out there and the difference in what you see when you look at the established uh dog food companies especially especially say your, your producers of veterinary diets and what information they provide and the testing that they do and what they put forward compared to um uh, green t- green tree natural organic homeopathic you know uh, s- uh steak wonderfulness diet that you're like i've never heard of that before but they have a really great ad on instagram uh and they they provide no no information about what's actually in the diet that's always been kind of amazing to me that you can have such variation in the information that's being provided by dog food companies. Do you see changes in regulation for pet foods? Are there things that are progressing in that arena?
1: I think really significant regulatory changes are unlikely. I mean, the FDA does have authority to regulate pet foods and to issue recalls and things like that but they tend to use that authority with a very light touch, um, partly because of resources and the fact that there's not a lot of political will to aggressively regulate veterinary medicine in general, uh, much less the pet food industry. Um, There are concerns about manufacturers and the role they may play. So one of the early uh, commentaries on this subject, Dr. Freemans in Javma, talked about what she called BEG diets. So boutique Mm -hmm. manufacturers, exotic protein sources, and grain-free diets. And some nutritionists are concerned that small manufacturers may not have the expertise. They may not have, for example, nutritionists on staff. Um, They may not have the quality control mechanisms or the capacity to test every batch and to do the sorts of things that larger manufacturers can. Now, the industry has pushed back on this and has done a little bit of survey of, of quality control and argues that these small manufacturers are not only capable of, of equaling the standards of larger companies, but may in some cases provide better standards because they're focused on a smaller product line or a, a niche kind of market and they have more expertise in that narrow area. They're not trying to meet the whole, the whole market. Um, so I think that in general, we're probably not gonna see a regulatory approach to this. What I talk to clients about in terms of understanding how to choose a pet food is that it is important to look at the expertise that a company employs. If if you're looking at a company that doesn't have a nutritionist on staff regularly, you know, there present working with their formulations, willing to say their name in public, I think that's a point for concern. Uh, and I think that if you if you have um, a company that is trying to market itself as an alternative to the pet food industry while being part of the pet food industry. Um, that too raises some concerns. Part of the reason why grain-free diets um, have been so popular is that they were initially perceived as as outside of the conventional industrial system for producing pet foods. And there are a lot of people who are interested in in alternative therapies and and healthcare in general who have suspicion of that kind of industry. So I think it's going to have to be market driven, just as grain-free diets. Took off in popularity because of market forces. If we want to have better expertise or better uh, transparency in the nutrition that we get for our pets, we're going to need to demand that of the companies we buy from.
0: Yeah, let's um let's end with a little bit more talk on tarring. And so you, we talked a little bit about tarring deficiency. And we said we we could we could expand on that a little bit. So let's 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 end our discussion there. So can you can you unpack a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Taurine is an amino acid, and it is uh, involved in many things in the body, but one of its functions has to do with the heart muscle, uh, with increasing calcium concentrations and potentially with antioxidant effects in the heart muscle. So it is necessary for normal heart muscle health and function. In dogs, it's not considered what's called an essential amino acid, meaning dogs produce it on their own. So you can feed a dog a diet with no taurine in it at all, and they will maintain normal taurine levels. In order to do that, they have to have precursors, uh, other amino acids from which taurine is made. Uh, cysteine and methionine are the two that are used to make it. They're sulfur containing amino acids, and dogs generate taurine from that. The role of taurine in cardiomyopathy is interesting because in some breeds, there is less production of taurine. Just genetically, they make less mm-hmm. taurine, and so they may be predisposed to deficiencies, particularly if they are then fed diets that have fewer uh, precursor amino acids like cysteine and methionine. So one argument about these diets is that grain-free diets may predispose to taurine deficiency because they have less of these amino acids in them. Uh, Legumes like peas and lentils don't have as much cysteine and methionine as wheat and corn and some of the grains. The other dietary factors involved in taurine is that fiber uh, is involved in both the excretion and the degradation of taurine in the gut, and there have been some studies in the past showing that high fiber diets can lead to taurine deficiencies in dogs because they interfere with the normal recirculation and recovery of taurine from the gut. So it's actually quite complicated and interesting, and then we have to remember that in some of these reports dogs who developed cardiomyopathy on grain-free diets and who recovered when they changed diets were not actually taurine deficient insofar as we can tell again we don't have a, a reference range by breed for taurine that everyone agrees on so some of these dogs appear to develop cardiomyopathy secondary to taurine deficiency potentially caused by diet others seem to be developing cardiomyopathy not related to taurine deficiency And potentially caused by diet. So, I think what we'll find eventually is that there are multiple factors involved the genetics of the dogs, the composition of the diet, both in terms of grains and non grain protein and and carbohydrate sources, and other factors as well that we haven't even thought about yet.
0: Uh, Dr. Brennan McKenzie, you are the author of Placebos for Pets The Truth About Alternative Medicine and Animals. Uh, Your book is excellent. Anyone who enjoys this conversation, I highly recommend it. There's uh, Chapter after chapter of different topics like this. Where can people find you, learn more about you? You are a regular columnist for um, veterinary practice news, and you have your own website, skeptvet.com. Is that correct? That's correct.
1: Yeah. I have a blog at theskepvet.com and I also have uh, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube presences. And this is one of the subjects that I've been following since this first appeared in the news in 2018. So I'm going to continue to follow it and and hopefully report the findings as they come out in the research.
0: Well, thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: Guys, that's our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I hope it made you think. Um, If there are topics that you would like for me to investigate in the future, please let me know. You can shoot me an email. The email address is podcast at DrAndyRourke.com. That's podcast at dot com. Take care. Be well. I'll talk to you guys soon.